Warney was an all-time great, a once-in-a-century type cricketer, and his records will live on forever. The Gatting ball definitely changed my life. You know, first ball, it was the perfect leg break. First ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Gatting has absolutely no idea what has happened to it. He still doesn't know. To do it first ball in the Ashes series, I think it was just meant to be. We all grew up watching Warney, idolising him. We all had posters on his wall, um, had his earrings. A lot of people say to me, like, oh, Warney, he's a bit of a wanker. I say, you've never met him, have you? Yeah. And I, no, I haven't. Yeah. If you meet Shane Warne and you have a bit of time with him, you love him. We, we love so much about Warney. Um, you know, his showmanship, his charisma, his tactics, the way he, he just willed himself and the team around him to win games for Australia. And probably, above all else, his incredible skills, legs bit. Yes, the King. Shane Warne is our guest on this week's show. You can check out his new book. It's a cracker. No spin. It's a fascinating read. Shane does not pull any punches. It's honest. It's forthright and it's very entertaining. Pretty much like Shane himself. So many lost and left behind And no one seemed to care Those who should seems like they're blind Pretending they're not there Can't they see they hold the key Could make things better if they try Oh my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes For me, to sit alongside Shane on Fox Cricket this summer has been a treat Many of you will know Warney for his wickets, the headlines and his uncanny ability in the commentary box to predict what is going to happen next. What you may not know and what I've really learnt in the start of this summer is Shane is extremely polite to everyone. He makes an effort to remember people's names. He doesn't take himself too seriously at all. He is always quick to pump up those around him and he loves life pretty much more than anyone I've ever met before. He loves it. One of the five wisdom cricketers of the last century, the Howie Games presents Shane Keith Warne. So when you search and then you find And 
know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me We want to reach Mount Zion I Welcome to the Howie Games, Shane Warne. I've been excited about this episode. It's great to see you, mate. Welcome along. I'm really, really thankful that you could spend some time with us. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for having me on. It's been an ambition of mine on the bucket list to oh, yeah. uh, uh, be on the Howie Games, mate. I've been listening to a lot of them. They've been outstanding. So um, I hope I can be one of many people that have come on that people find interesting. Um, so thanks for having me. I'm sure there'll be no problems there. As the music starts going on in the background, we're at the cricket stadium here. <laughs> I'm actually going and shut the windows as we speak. That's it. Continue on our it's Bruce Springsteen, mate. You know, why do you want to turn that off? You love it. He's my man. He's the only person in my life so far I've turned into a bumbling mess. Really? Asked him to smile in a photo. Like I said, what just came out of my mouth? Can I please take that back? Where'd you meet him? Uh, he was doing a concert. It was my, I think it was my 28th concert. I've been to 30. Bruce Springsteen concerts? Yeah. So you're a groupie? Oh, yeah, I'm a groupie. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. I lined up at the showgrounds in 85. Um, overnight, camped out. And I think I was 15, about turned 16. Um, and I bought all his albums before Born in the USA when everyone sort of said, how good is this Bruce Springsteen? I knew yeah. a fair bit before that. Born to Run and a few others. Dark Slinger, Tower. Anyway, we get... And um, I, the 85 was unbelievable watching Bruce Springsteen. So ever since then, I've been a... You know, I've always a fan. But since 85, when I went to his... The first concert I went to... And he came out in his headband and he just said, and I just said, this guy, he's my, he's my idol, he's a legend. And I've managed to meet him a few times. Um, but the first time I met him, I was with Michael Gadinsky. Uh, there was that Como Hotel here in Melbourne. And uh, it was a private little get-together of everyone. And uh, I was sort of sitting in the corner thinking, God, there's Bruce Springsteen now, there's Bruce Springsteen. I, 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 I wonder if I could say hello. And I suddenly started feeling myself like... Stop, just relax, like, don't be an idiot. I said, yeah, yeah, don't. Next one, he's, hey, Shane, come over here. Kadinsky's coming over here. Shane, Shane, come over here. Come on, mate, Bruce. So um, I've, I've sort of, oh, hello, Bruce, how are you? Uh, yeah, good, thanks. Well, I hear you're this amazing cricketer. And I'm going, <laughs> I, went, I said, oh, yep, that'll be, that'll do. And, um, and then he's given it the, um, would you like a photo? And Kadinsky goes, hey, come over here and take a photo. And I for suddenly, for some reason, I said, oh, Bruce, would you mind smiling in the photo? And I was like, what? Sorry. What just came out of my mouth? Can I take that back? Can we just rewind? And I started turning into this, just, I, I'm feeling embarrassed and getting sweaty hands straight away. So we did the photo and Bruce also went, oh, yeah, right, okay, and then walked off. I put my head down and I said to Gideonsi, I'm going home. <laughs> and I just went straight home, sat in the couch and went, you idiot, what the hell would just... What, you've never said anything like that in your life. How do you say to Bruce Springsteen, would you mind smiling in the face? Like, why? <laughs> so that was, yeah, so that was, geez, that's, what, 33 years ago. So do you ever sit back in... We've only been working together for a few weeks now yep. and I'm enjoying every moment of it, enjoying yeah, learning the way you talk about the game. Do you ever sit back and think, how can I be this fella that has met Bruce Springsteen and spends time with Chris Martin and is mm-hmm. one of the top five wisdom cricketers of the last century and drives a fancy car and every door seems to be open? Do you ever sit back and think, how did this happen to me? Uh when you start putting it all like that, it's, it's, I mean, I've been very, very lucky. Uh, I'm very grateful uh, for my life. Uh, I've made plenty of mistakes along the journey. Um, you know, I was thrust into international cricket. 
uh, I think when I was 21. Um, so I'm not making any excuses. Don't get me wrong, I'm not making any excuses. But there's no school you go to to learn how to handle the ups and downs mm. and the, the spotlight of the international media and uh, the public profile and all that sort of stuff. You just try and be yourself. Um, you know, I, I made some really poor choices along the way. But I think one of the reasons why, if I look, you know, nearly 30 years down the road of being in the public eye, um, I think the one thing I'm proud of is that I've never pretended to be something I'm not. I've always been myself. Uh, and people will like you or they don't like you. That's okay. I, I'm proud of who I am. And my friends are great. Um, they're loyal. My family's fantastic. They've supported me. Uh, my children are awesome. Um, so really, at the end of the day, all I want to answer to or make me make me make them feel proud of me is my parents, my family, mm-hmm. and my friends. You know, I never let them down. I'm always there if they need me. Uh, I'm I'm polite. I'm well mannered. I'm always nice to people. I sign autographs. I do all that. Anyone that asks, no matter when. Um, so I, I think I'm a good person. I've just made a few silly mistakes. But if I look at my life, I've you know, as you say, Chris Martin's one of my best friends. Um, we met nearly 20 years ago. Um, you know, all those people, Ed Sheeran and um, all those people, they're, they're cricket lovers. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't choose to want to be like that. All I chose is I was, wanted to be a cricketer. And, and with that becomes, I suppose, responsibility. There comes, um, because it's an international game, and it's played all over the world, and mainly in the UK, you know, some of the biggest stars on the planet, you know, whether it be Elton John, Mick Jagger, Mick Chris Martin, they're all English. Yeah. And they love cricket. Mm. So being a successful cricketer like I was, a lot of them wanted to meet me. So meeting them and I wanted to meet them. So then when you just, like with Chris, I sat down with him and we were just talking like two guys. I didn't, you know, it was sort of like a mutual respect for each other, but I didn't. I wasn't a fanboy. The only person I've been a fanboy was to Bruce Springsteen. Bruce Springsteen, which is where we started. Exactly. But the others have just become friends. And, you know, I think everyone is just normal. And they're doing something extraordinary that they love doing. And the things that come along with that uh, are amazing and great. But there are also a lot of downfalls to it. You know, my children sometimes go, Dad, I wish you, you know, like I go, go out with my friends to a, a festival and everyone goes, oh, there's Warney's son, you must be loaded, buy us a drink and all that. So hmm. the, the effects it has on my children isn't easy for them either. They didn't ask for that. You know, they were born into this world. They didn't ask for it. They don't want it. They don't want it. They want to be just quiet. But they've got no choice. So that's the hardest thing, I think, in life when you've got no choice, you know, because everything you do is a choice. But if you've got no choice and it's thrust upon you, then you have to try and deal with that and learn with it. And when your dad's been an idiot a few times and made plenty of mistakes and embarrassed them, um, you know, that's, a, that's pretty tough on them. So I'm really proud of my children. I'm really proud of the father I've become. Um, and, I, and I love being a dad. It's, it's bloody rewarding when you see them. Uh, grow up. I mean, my children now are about to turn next year, 22, 20 and 80, 18. Where, where does it go? I know. So, And I'm 50 next year. So it's not so much they're my, my children. They're like my friends now, you know, but you still have to be there and that and that balance between being a strict parent and being tough on them, but helping them too. Mm. It, it's a real fine balance and, and not an easy one. From the outside, mate, you look a bit like your great mate, Sam Newman, who's been on yep. this show. You almost look bulletproof. Yeah. That it seems with Sam, nothing seems to worry him. Are you more of a sensitive soul than that? It does, 
Have you been hurt along the way by things that have been said or written or spoken about you by people that don't know, or can you just brush it off and say that's the price of what I do? Uh, brush most of it off now, but there was a time early on uh, in the first, I don't know how many years, but when I first started as a 21-year-old and some guy's going, this guy's no good, uh, you know, and they're commenting on the way I dress, the way I look, mm. um, my cricket, uh, where I... S- hang out it's like hang on <laughs> I'm going out for a beer with my mates with it. like who cares um, so I, I, I was a little not sensitive but I think I was listening to too many people commenting on at the start of my life um, and my start off I suppose my international career and it wasn't really until 93 um, when I bowled the gadding ball where that ball changed my life suddenly I, I'd never encountered what's so called uh, paparazzi that we call it now I don't know what we called it back then photographers probably mm. um, it, it, following you around you know and it wasn't as I had Alan Border and Merv Hughes and all these guys I'd walk out of the windmill pub down in London after over the road from where we were staying and suddenly there'd be 20 photographers rushing after me getting a photo of me and AB and Merv would just be walking past I'm going <laughs> they're going oh yeah he's over there but like I mean I, I didn't ask for that um <laughs> And, and, and I'm thinking, hang on, Merv's like, why aren't they taking pictures of Merv and AB and all these guys? So those first few years I found it really, you know, 21, 22, 23 years of age, I found it like I just I couldn't get used to it. And, it was, and, and I think I lost my rag a few times too, like, like, just go away, go away. And as soon as you wave your hand or say go away, that's the photo that's on the page, like Warren loses plot. And I'm like, Jesus, hang on, I was just telling you to go away and leave me alone with my kids or what I was with, with my mates. So I think over a period of time, I got to think, well, I, I, I came up with this sort of solution. I don't know when, probably 15, 20 years ago was. I read everything. Do you? Yep. And I, and it's pretty hard in these day and age with social media now not to see something. Yep. And people that say I don't read it, people that say um, I don't listen to it, rubbish. Because you hear everything. What you choose to do is not react to it. So I got the belief that I would read everything if it was someone that I respected or thought was, whether it was a Richie Benno or an Ian Chappell about my cricket, I would then approach them and say, Richie, why did you think you wrote this? I read that article you wrote um, and I disagree with you with that. Why did you think that? So I'd have it out and talk with them. And then if I'd see his point of view. But if it was just some journalist that's trying for clickbait and just trying every day to write a story because he's got nothing else to write about, then I didn't really care. Who cares? But I'm not bulletproof, but I just didn't care. It had no impact on my life. Um, The other reason I read everything was if you don't, most people, your friends, would ring and say, did you see what Mark Howard said about you the other day? Mike. And you go, oh, that prick. And then you read it and go, hang on. It's not that bad. And I think that's a bit like Mitchell Stark at the moment. I saw Starkey come out and say, I don't listen to what Warren says. If I do, I'd retire. Um, all of us in Adelaide, everyone, every network, every radio said, what's gone wrong with Mitchell Stark? And my point that I wrote in my column was, anyone going into the first test should be at peak form because you've been able to prepare any way you like. Rest, bowl, and he had no rhythm. Now, that's okay. You can have a bad spell. You can, but, but not for five days of a test match because you've had the perfect preparation, whatever you feel is right. At six for 127, he bowled atrocious. He bowled the ball to fine leg. We couldn't knock over the tail. We should have bowled India out for 200. 
they made 250. So I said to him, let's hope we don't see that. And in my column, I also said, if Australia to win this series, we need Mitchell Stark at his best. So I was having a go at him for being poor with a second-year ball in both innings because we had 36 extras and he was bowling the ball to fine leg. Now, if he thinks that's fine, sure, then I'm wrong. So, so but it's not. So when you make comments like that, um, and this will go to air uh, during just before the Sydney Test match. Yep. So you commented about Mitchell Stark or yep. about Pete Hanscom. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's you, the yep, effect those comments will yep. have, especially yep. with News Limited now, it, it yep. will go everywhere, which is your job and, yep. and the organisation's job. Do you ever second-guess yourself before you make those comments? Because no. you know what effect they're going to no. have. Because I think we lose respect from the public if we don't speak our opinion. Too many people sit on the fence because they don't want to offend anyone. Absolutely. So I think as a, to get credibility as a broadcaster, um, I've got to speak the way I feel. Now, I don't, I don't dislike Mitchell Stark. I don't dislike Peter Hanscom. I wish I could say how great is it that Peter Hanscom, a Victorian, could be playing in the MCG test. Yep. Isn't it great that his technique is working? Um, but I'm asked to comment on it. But then uh, what happens then, say you see X player that you've commented on the ground, because yep. I'm a wuss, and it's not my job to do it. I, yep. that, that would concern me. Yep. How do you then go about it when you say, I don't talk specifics here, but when mm. you've commented on someone, like you were talking about Richie Benno commenting yep. on you, how do you go when you come across that person, which you're going to do in, in your working yep. environment all the time? Well, I, I see a lot of people also will comment and then try and backtrack when they see them, I, I, I say, if Mitchell Stark wants to say, I'll say good morning to Mitchell Stark, if he doesn't want to say good morning to me or whoever it is that I speak about, that's okay. I'm okay with it. It's no, it doesn't affect me. It's, it doesn't impact on my life. I'm there to do a job, and that is to commentate on what I see. In my experience of playing 30 years of international cricket, as you said, being voted one of the top five cricketers of all time in the last century, yep. I'd like to think that I've got a bit of credibility of what I've achieved on the cricket field to think that, I might have a point or, you know, I'm not always right, but I might have a point that you might consider. Um, if you don't think it's worth listening to, that's fine. But I think I, I, I enjoy my job and I think people enjoy listening to me because I do say what I think. I do, I never sit on the fence and I try to be constructive. I don't, anyone can sit up in the box and say, he's rubbish, that's no good, that's, that, that, that's not commentating. What you have to be is constructive and give an answer to why you believe that is. So the punter out in the street can sit there because they're sitting on the couch going, oh, that's rubbish. So why is he bold rubbish, whoever it might be? Because his preparation was wrong. Is his technique wrong? Uh, has he got the wrong fields? So we, as a commentator, I believe that we need to give the viewer and the listener something to talk about amongst themselves, like we're at a pub having a beer saying, hey, mate, what's wrong with the Australian team? And you go, well, mate, I believe this should happen. They go, yeah, I agree, or no, what about... And then you have a debate. So just because you might criticise someone, it's not because you don't like them. There's no one... I don't know them, so how do I not like them? All I can commentate on a comment is on what I see and what I feel um, being around some teams and being around for a while and being around the block a few times that I think I know what I'm talking about. doesn't mean I'm always right, but it's my opinion. The book... Yes. No spin. Shane Warren. Yep. Congratulations on the book. Thank you. Alongside Mark Nicholas, who helped you with it. It's mm-hmm. an extraordinary read. I've read a lot of sport books. Often I skip them, read yep. a chapter here, a chapter there, and then chat to people about it. This is an extraordinary read because it, it seems to be you. It seems to be your yep. thoughts directly on paper. Um, was it cathartic to write it? It's, it was a... It took about a year. It's bloody honest, by the way. Uh, well, I've all, that, I th- you know, as I said before, I think 
the reason people don't throw eggs at me or rocks at me is uh, I think I've always been honest. I've always been upfront. I've always owned whatever good, bad things I've done uh, or mistakes I've made. And I've never pretended to be something I'm not. So with my book, it's not one of those, well, in this game, this happened. This is about my no. journey as a child, what it was like with, uh, growing up with my family, uh, my mum's background, which I've never made public before. Talk about that right now because that was the bit that I said to you the other day. Yeah. I had no idea about your mum's background and your family history. Yeah, so she well, basically got on a boat to come to Australia. Uh, her family, uh, well, her mother and father, um, plus a few other um, families were living in a garage and the fathers of each family were rotating around working. In Germany? Uh, here and right. in Germany. Right. Uh, they eventually escaped, uh, not a, well, sort of escaped, but came to Australia. Thought they were going to America to start with. <laughs> um, I've still got the list of every single passenger that uh, mum came over with. Met my dad, uh, what my dad's upbringing was and how tough it was for him and what he was prepared to do um, to help me and my brother have a life that he didn't have uh, and how hard he was prepared to work. I uh, got to the stage where he was, you know, he'd work and then uh, he'd go up north and cut cane in the season. He'd do bare knuckles fighting in pubs just to try and make, you know, a couple of bucks that he could send us to school um, to try and make ends meet, provide for us. So, you know, my mother and father are my heroes. They're, they're amazing. My mum uh, is awesome. My father's, they're great. And anyone that meets them goes... You know, anyone that meets my mum goes, okay, I see her, you get it from my, my mum's very much like me, my brother's like my dad. But um, I was very lucky growing up and I'm very thankful for my parents. They drove me around, my brother around to footy, cricket, gave up their weekends and everything like that to um, help us. Uh, they didn't, uh, never interfered. Um, they just sat there in the car and, the, and, and watched, never pushed, uh, which I'm really thankful for because I see a lot of, parents that are unfortunately pushy uh, my boy liked to play footy Aussie rules and um, watching some of the parents I nearly got in I was boundary umpire um, for East Sandringham versus the vampires <laughs> and I was running around to the to the um, the boundary line following the ball in case went out of bounds and um, one of the guys went up for a mark and hit his head this was under 13s I think it was so they're 12. And one of them, he got a bit concussed. And the opposition, and I was, I was sort of right in front of the opposition. And some of the parents, that's it, stay down, you weak dog. And I sat there and said, excuse me? He said, stick your nose out, warn you should know better than that. I said, mate, it's a 12-year-old kid. What about, are you okay? Mm. And so here I am, I'm about to punch on with some other parent about under 13. Back on the front page of the paper. That's it. So I said, you know what, I just trot off. I said, mate, you should know better. He said, you should know better, Warren. Stick your nose out. I went, right. So I just went up to the boy and said, are you okay? And the trainer came out and all that stuff. And I just couldn't believe it. So I see a lot of that sort of stuff with my kids growing up. And I think, wow, how lucky was I with my parents that never pushed, never abused, never yelled out or anything like that, embarrassed. You know, later on in their life, I've done plenty of embarrassing <laughs> things. But, um, but yeah, I just couldn't believe some of the parents when I see underage sport. It's disappointing. So what's your first memory? Because you played a lot of footy, which we'll touch on. But what's your first memory of cricket? Was it backyard? Was it beach? What's the first time you can remember playing a game uh, of cricket? My first memory of cricket was down the beach. I lived in uh, Black Rock. So I lived over the road from the beach, Half Moon Bay. Uh, and my brother and I used to go over and play beach cricket with a few of our mates that we were growing up with, some of his mates, some of mine, and you'd skim the ball across the water and someone would be in the water trying to take a one-hander and 
Then you'd come back to the house and you'd take the tennis ball up and we had a little a driveway with a gate, which was Rod Marsh, the gate. <laughs> Uh, and then you had the Chapel Brothers at Slip. Uh, and, but instead of just playing normal backyard, we had to pick our World Eleven teams. So you had to pick not just Aussies, but anyone in the world you could be. Okay. 11 versus 11. And you had to imitate them. So you weren't just, you know, Alan Border and batted right-handed. You had to bat left-handed and you had to, you know, play his pull shot and all those. You had to bowl like Abdul Qadir. My brother's favourite was Garth LaRue from South Africa, right. the big Garth big LaRue. Big blonde guy. Yep. So, Who were you? Uh, it was hard to go past Dennis Lilly. I think we all loved Dennis Lilly growing up my age. We all loved... Did uh, you do the flicking the sweat off? I had, I, had the, uh, I had the appeal to down pat. Uh, I had the shirt open. Yeah, I had all that. So, yeah, I think that was great. Um... I mean, Ian Chappell, I loved Ian Chappell, the collar up and all that sort of stuff. So that was my back. That was my earliest memories of cricket. Um, and then I sort of got into club cricket at East Sandy, um, played in the under-12s, and we made a grand final. And I made I was a batsman all right. the time. I never really bowled. Really? Uh, I tried wicket-keeping. I tried bowling fast. Um, and then I sort of... You know, messed around with bowling a few leg breaks and off-spinners and straight ones and seamers and stuff and... Um, Do you remember the first time in a match you bowled leg spin? Uh, because let's be honest, it would have been in the under twelves. I think in the grand final I got four for something bowling leggies. But they might have been full toss. I can't remember how I got them out, right. but I, I was trying to bowl leggies, uh, and I think I made some runs with the bat too. Um, yeah. So, but I, what interested me most was at East Sandy was we played on matting, so not on the grass, but concrete pitch with mats over the top. So everything was accentuated. So if you bowled a leg spinner, it would spin miles and bounce a lot. If you bowl fast, you'd bowl bowl, bowl bounces and things like that too. So that sort of got me a bit curious watching, you know, guys like Ron Cantlin. Kim Pitt was the main man at uh, East Sandy. (coughs) Excuse me. And he was a captain, you know, made the hundreds and took wickets and all that sort of stuff. So watching him do all that sort of stuff just gave me a lot of curiosity. So I just practised and tried and I never really had any coaching. I just practised myself. Um, and then over the years, as time got on, I, I think my first game for Shield Cricket, I think I was picked at number seven to bat and bowl a bit of leg spin in 1990, I think. Steve Smith style. Yeah, basically similar to that. And then um, I went the other way. Obviously, Smitty's become one yeah. of the world's best batsmen. I suppose I got pretty good at leg spin and made a few handy runs. I've also, I've got the, there's a lot of stats about, obviously, when you play for a long time, but one stat I'm not proud of is that I think I made over 3,000 and something test runs, which is the most in the history of the game without 100. So how? So, so this is the great I should thing have made three podcast. or four. Well, this is the great thing about this podcast where you can skip around. You're on 99 yeah. in a test match. Mm-hmm. There's singles all around the ground. Mm-hmm. Why didn't you just push one into the gap and what did happen? I generally ask myself that question every day. <laughs> <laughs> I go, why don't you just lap sweep it or just push it in there for one? Um I don't know, mate. I, I, when I see the replay of me trying to slog it um, for six after all day donging it down the ground, yep. um, I think, you idiot. Goes for it. There's a man out there who's getting under it. And he's got it. And Shane Warne tragically finishes on 99. Well, I saw Michael Slater get 99 here four years ago. Caught down the leg side. The dire spirit thought to Shane Warne. He's played brilliantly. He's caught going for the slog sweep in the deep. And his wonderful innings ends on 99. 
what were you doing? Like, so my mindset wasn't to play a big mo for six. I was just trying to sweep it along the ground for one. But when I watched the replay, I take this almighty swing at it, right? So I was just the adrenaline and pump and all that stuff. And oh, basically, I just choked. I choked there. I choked in uh, Old Trafford in uh, 05 Ashes. I think I got, was it 90 or 91 or something? I got caught hooking. Mm, how do you feel walking off 99 when you've never scored a Test Match 100? Uh, I look back now and laugh, but at the time, I mean, I was, you could feel, when I walked into the, as I was walking off the ground, I'm just thinking, you idiot, like, and I I was, I was disappointed to not obviously make a hundred, but I was more disappointed at how I got out. And um, I remember walking off and as I sort of got off the ground and into the change, I started to get angry then from disappointed. And by the time I got to my spot and there was just deathly silence in the dressing room, Steve Bernard, the team manager, had put a a chair in the shower area and an ashtray and a beer there. And I just walked straight in there and I just lit up a dart, had a beer, went, you idiot. And everyone started laughing. And then so from then I was sort of giggling most of the night. It wasn't, you know, it was a bit like, oh, no, what was I doing? And so it was a bit of fun and laughter rather than... You know, obviously still disappointed, but, um, you know, I had plenty of chances to get some more. I should have got three or four, but I didn't get any. Your first Test match, because um, we could sit here and talk about every match you ever played and it'd be <laughs> the, the Warren games and it'd go for eight episodes, <laughs> which I'd love. But your first Test match against India, yep. like you look back at those pictures, you look about 11. Yeah. Um, I was the size of a house and 11 years of age. Probably. You I, was, were, I, was, I think I was, so what was I, 91 and I was born in 60. So I must have been 21. Right. And you were a big unit. I was 99 kilos. Really? And I, in 89, I went my first trip. I'd just finished football with St Kilda. I'd yep. played three years down at the club. And um, I was fit as a Mallee below. I was 77 kilos and I was fit. And um, I went to England in 89 and I came back 79 ki- uh, 99 kilos. So I put 22, yeah, put on 20 odd kilos. Beers? Uh, well, when I got there, I, uh, when I was early, early in the late 80s, I, I, I didn't have a problem, but I loved the beer. Right. Like, I loved the beer. Like, I'd easily, again, okay, you buy a slab and you know, drink a dozen beers out the back, and just I just loved it. Mm-hmm. And then. In '92, I stopped the beer because I was getting drinking beer too much. So I thought it puts on it just chins, guts. So I said, get off that, get onto the vodka. Then I went to some silly Maduris. Then I went to Maduris, yeah. Shane. Oh come on! Yeah, I went, to, I went to all sorts of funny things. Um, so, but now I, I, I enjoy. I have one or two beers in, when it's hot in the summer. Generally, I don't drink beer most of the other time, except for in the summer. But I've got to be careful because if you have one or two, like I could, so I stop and then I have a vodka or something. So. so so, when you walk into that test match, as we figured out, you're a 21 yep. or 22 year old. I didn't know half the team. I'd never met them. Uh, my green baggy cap was just in my bag. So I went down to Cricket Australia or then ACB um, and they shook my hand and said, Congratulations. I said, oh, Thank you. They said, There's your bag. And it was like the old coffins. And in there was your tracksuit, uh, white sh- you know, the shirt with just the logo of ACB. There was no sponsors on it. Uh, the green baggy cap was in there, uh, shorts, all that stuff. So I just took my bag, put it in the car. Or Dad drove me because I had a hungover. And uh, I got home and said, oh, shit, this is all pretty good. Oh, this cap's pretty good. Took a photo with Mum with a cap on. Uh, there was no presentations or anything like that. Um, and that was, that was it. So then I went to Sydney. Um, and I'd only, I only knew Merv and Dino because I'd played um, Vic, for Victoria with them. Mm-hmm. I'd met Alan Border at the Prime Minister's 11 game, 
but I didn't know. So the team I didn't know was Jeff Marsh and Mark Taylor. I hadn't met them. Uh, uh, sorry, I had met Mark Taylor because I went on the Zimbabwe tour uh, the year before. So I knew Mark Taylor. Didn't know David Boone, uh, who batted at three. Didn't know Jeff Marsh. Uh, Mark Wall was four. Didn't know. Uh, five was Dino, who I knew. Six was Alan Border. Um, seven was Ian Healy, who I didn't know. Uh, eight uh, was Merv, who I knew. Nine, me. Craig McDermott, didn't know. Bruce Reed, I didn't know, who was uh, who broke down in the first over. So I basically remember introducing myself. Hi, Bruce. Uh, Shane Warne, how are you? Yeah, good luck, mate. That was yeah. So that was how... So when you think about it, I mean, it's evolved very... to better now, but... Um, it was complete late 80s, early 90s was completely different. And then to think about the 70s and that before that, um, I don't know what it was. I suppose it was sort of the same. Um, but it was definitely the old school was sit down, shut up, don't say a word. Um, I was 12th man in a, on a, a game uh, in 1990, 91 season. And I remember Gary Watts, who was opening the batting, had his feet on an esky. And uh, I wasn't allowed to shower until everyone else had finished as 12th man. So I waited and Gary Watts was one of the last people in the room and he had his feet on the esky. He said, hey, 12th, he gave me a beer. <laughs> and I was like, um, your feet are on the esky. He said, yeah, well, just get me a beer. It's your job. Okay. So can you lift your feet up, mate? Yeah. Gave him a beer, put his feet back down. And then I went to have a shower. He said, no, no, you have to shower when I'm finished. Wow. So I just had to wait until he'd showered. And that's the way it was. Um I look back now and giggle at it, but that's that. There was I didn't know any different. I'd played cricket at the St Kilda, and that was the way it was at St Kilda too. Um, so it has evolved for the better, but it was a lot different in the late eighties and early nineties. So your first Test match, Ravi Shastri, who we had on our uh, yeah, on, on your and Kerry O'Keefe yeah, show yeah, coming yeah. spinner the other day, which the coat hanger. Yeah, so I think you you got him out eventually, but he hit yeah. you everywhere. Maybe would you get one for a hundred and one for hundred and fifty in your first Test him match? Caught and bowled at sixty six, and he went on to make two hundred and six. Well, it's a stiff examination for Shane Warne because he's up against the players who play spin bowling better than anyone else. The Indian players see a lot of off spin and leg spin in their own country. Uh, it's a tough examination for Warren. So h- how do you walk away from a first test match where you've been smashed everywhere? Where, where do you find in yourself to think, right, I, I can do this, or at that point, can't you do it? No, I didn't think I could. I didn't think I was good enough. I'd only played a handful of first-class games, uh, 21, 22 years of age, somewhere around there, thinking... Jeez, what the hell? I've just embarrassed myself out there. Bill O'Reilly wrote a, a tremendous article saying... A famous seen, league spinner from the past? Yeah, he wrote an article saying, um, I've just seen the future. I've just seen this young leg spinner. I hope the Australian selectors stick with him because I think he's going to be good. Um, and that made me feel like, God, oh, the great Bill O'Reilly said that. He's, he's just sticking up for the brotherhood. And that night we, I went out with Merv for dinner and a beer and then people going, oh, who's a young bloke who can't bowl and all this sort of stuff? He's <laughs> really useless. And Merv said, why don't you just tell him how many test wickets you've got? You know, just tell him. I said, yeah, good on you, mate. How many test wickets you got? Same as you, mate. None. <laughs> <laughs> so I was getting stitched up by the big... <laughs> um, and Merv, you know, he was... Oh, God, he was good to me, Merv. I mean, we played in Adelaide. <laughs> and um, we'd, been out, we'd been out. We were batting the next day. And uh, we're playing India. And we, we had a few, we had a few, and um, got back to the room. And Merv's in the big bed. And I'm in the stretcher, pull out off the wall, and um, it, he goes, "You hungry?" I said, "Oh, yeah, mate, but it's just 
it's 1.30 in the morning, mate. You know, we've got to play tomorrow. I'm all right. He goes, nah, let's get some food. I said, oh, all right, yeah, mate. So he rings room service. He said, oh, can I uh, um, hamburger with a lot, steak sandwich with a lot, chocolate milkshake, two oh. portions of fries, some garlic bread, toasted ham cheese and tomato sandwich. Uh, do you want anything? <laughs> <laughs> Straight off. I said, no, I'm right, mate. So, <laughs> and I was like, I'm like, all righty So, I don't know, it takes 20 minutes, 30 minutes. So it's like 2 o'clock and I'm sort of sitting in the bed having a dart because you just smoking the rooms and that then. So I was having a dart. And the food comes. So Trey comes in and Merv just... Rah, rah, rah. He's had Terminator 2 on on the TV on, like, just keeps going round and round. So anytime you come into the room after day's play, you watch Terminator 2. And uh, so he finishes the, uh, the room service... And he says, right, now I've got to teach you a real trick. He said, you never, ever leave the tray outside your room. Because us, us, us fat bastards, he said... I said, hang on. He says, no, no, you're in the fat bastard. I said, I oh, know, OK, OK. And he goes, what, what, what you guys have to realise is that the physios and people see the trays. So he said, you've got to put it outside the skinny bloke's rooms. And I said, what? And he goes, yeah, just look. He said, Craig McDermott's staying a few doors down. Just go and do that. So I've got my, you know, jocks on. And um, so I push the tray. As I'm pushing the tray down the corridor, this door shuts. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, no, no. Now it's like, I don't know what the time is, quarter past two in the morning. We've got to get up at 7.30 or whatever, 8 o'clock. Well, we actually only used to get the ground an hour before play. With, so I don't know what time we had to get up earlier. And I'm, so I get the door saying, Merv, come on. He goes, ah, I got you, I got you. You don't have to stay out there all night. I said, no, mate. No, no, come on, please. You've got to let me in. So anyway, I stood there, I don't know how long, but he must, he let me stay out there for, I don't know, 20 minutes <laughs> in my jocks. Uh, in the end, he let me back in. But um, uh, they were fun times. That's a good fun story. Fun times, fun times. You probably made your mark in Sri Lanka when you got three late wickets and Abe gave you a bowl and you yep. won a test match, which for cricket historians, they'll understand that story. But, but you mentioned it before. As soon as, and I did it this morning, as soon as you Google Shane Warne, the yep. first thing that pops up is Mike Gatting ball of the century. Right. And you mentioned um, it changed your life. Can you indulge me? And it's the first time you're going to bowl in an Ashes match yep. in England. You've got the ball in the hand, I presume AB. Yes, captain. captain yep. He said, come on. Yep. What happens next? Um, so I get told I'm bowling the next over that end. So I stand at the top of my mark, I look at my field, and I'm about to bowl the first ball in an Ashes series. And I'm like, geez, you know, I'm starting to get nervous because you think back to I was there in 1989 playing league cricket, yep. and that's when the Ashes were regained by Australia after a long period of time. And um, I, I thought, geez, how good is that Ashes series look? It looks like. So now I'm part of it. Now I'm about to bowl. <laughs> and I thought back to the plane and I, and a, like a funny flashback, once again, it was Merv. I said, I said, mate, what's so, I understand the Australia, England and all that, the Ashes, and it's big. It gets bigger every year, by the way, the mm. Ashes. No matter how bad Australia are or England, how bad they are, it just gets bigger, the Ashes. And I said, what's so good? He said, put it this way, we're sponsored by a beer company. He said, there's still rest days in test cricket. He said, England are crap, and we'll probably beat them 4-0. He said, they're outstanding. And he said, if you take wickets early on, that means you don't play tour games. <laughs> so I've had, you know, I saw that gave me a bit of a laugh. So I'm standing at the top of Mark. Graham Gooch is at the non-striker's end, and he's sort of staring at me the whole time. I've got Mike Gatting, who's arguably one of the best players of spin in the world, definitely England's best spin player of spin. And their spinner had taken Pfeiffer 
in the first innings, Peter Such. The wicket's turning, so the expectation is going to turn. The first game, tour game of the Ashes, we played against Graham Hick, and he made, I think, 200. He hit me for 13 sixes right. in that practice game. He was the next big thing. That's right. And because uh, uh, before the game, Alan Border said, mate, I just want you to bowl leg breaks, nothing else. Before said, the tour game? Yeah, he said, he said no wrong-uns, no flippers, no nothing, because this Hick guy he could be big for them. And I went, oh, it should be good enough anyway. Eh? Well, anyway, as I said, 13 sixes later, he smashed me all over the park. So I get to the first test match and I'm like, jeez, you know, I wonder if I'm going to get picked. I get picked. So now I'm finding myself, I'm standing at the top of the mark, about to bowl my first ball. And I'm thinking, right, stick your chest out and just try and rip this as far as you possibly can. Just send a message, just spin it as far as you can. Doesn't matter if it takes a wicket, doesn't matter what it does, just bowl it so it spins. Just take a breath and I go, and as all the releases out of the hand, you know it's good. Now, whether it takes a wicket, whether it spins past the bat, whether they run down and pat it away or they smash it, I know it's a good delivery. And then what unfolded after that was, you know, what people now call the ball of the century. It was the, probably the, it was the perfect leg spinner to do it. First ball was a complete fluke. It was a complete fluke. I've ne- I never did it again. <laughs> Bowled a ball like that first ball ever. First ball in Test cricket in England for Shane Warne. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Gadding has absolutely no idea what has happened to it. He still doesn't know. So it was just one of those things I think was meant to be. Um, and it was also the first year of what we called the big screens at the ground. We never used to have them. Yep. So, you know, it happened and Ian Healy's going, oh, boy, have a look at this. This is good. So we all look up and I sort of went, uh, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, that's pretty good. So it was uh, one of those feelings that I thought, geez. So suddenly, though, the, the expectations that I could do that all the time um, weren't easy to sort of live up to my own expectations. Not everybody else's, but everyone else. So you put into the mix everyone else's expectations and your own. Um, to try and recreate that and do that all the time, um, it, it just doesn't happen. But it, was, it, it did change my life because suddenly you know, I was on the front page, back page, who is this guy? Let's know more about it. I was picking up the paper on the bus going to the next game going, 10 things you didn't know about Shane Warne. I'm going, well, I didn't know that either. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading all this stuff going, what the hell? I, that's not true. <laughs> so it was my first sort of also things about how things just weren't true that were being written as well. And then what do you do about that? Do you just let it slide? Do you not? And I'm going, well, you can't write that. That's not true. So he spent so much waste, so much energy on stuff that just in the end didn't really matter. My kids are involved in this podcast. Right. Uh, my daughter and my son, uh, who have good nicknames. My daughter is... Uh, known as the pickle. I don't really the know why. The pickle. Um, I played her the ball of the century this morning. Yeah. We normally show them and whoever's enthused then asks a question of the guest. Right. Uh, you get the pickle. Right. She was well, thank you very much. This morning, where you need the to pickle. Uh, hear the question before you think her too much. This <laughs> okay. was this morning. Here we go. Oh, how cute. That's awesome. Um, Well, thank you very much for the question, Pickle. Um, I enjoy that. Uh, I would have to say yes. Right. It would be. Um, I've probably bowled better balls but never took a wicket. Um, So that would have to be the best ball I've ever bowled to take a wicket, yes. And one, as I said, changed my life. 
And the fact that Richie Benno was calling it, yep. I think, adds to it even more. As I said, the thing I like about the podcast is you can skip around. What was it like when you first sat down in a commentary box next to Richie Benno? Yeah. Um, uh, intimidating. Was it? Yeah. Uh, I saw, After the Ashes 93, I signed with Channel 9. Uh, I was called into Kerry Packer's office. Uh, and he said, son, I want you to be part of the Nine Network. I want you to learn how to commentate because everyone needs to think about their future. And I said, mate, I'm 23 years old. You know, I, think, I'm, I like to think I'm going to play for a few more years. <laughs> well, you just don't know, son, say, I want you. So he put me onto a guy called John Murphy down here in Melbourne and he, I watched old footage of cricket tapes, listening to the commentators. Um, I just sort of learnt the business a little bit. I, I'm not saying I know the business, but I learned how things worked. TV. What, what was your first gig for nine? My first gig was on the Monday after I'd signed. In 1993, I was 23 years old. Um, or it might have just turned 24, somewhere like that there. And it was the Ernie and Denise show. So I signed on the Friday. I got a call on the Sunday night um, by Murph to say... Uh, Dermot Brereton has he's not available to read the sport on the Ernie and Denise show uh, we want a, you to read the sport auto cue style and I went sure so I, they said you need to be there at 5.30 I went what sorry <laughs> 5.30 in the morning on Monday I said yeah sure okay so I get there at 5.30 and they said we're going to teach you about auto cue I said what's auto cue I didn't have a clue what auto cue was so they said well it's basically helping you read the sport that, but you're not meant to look like you're reading I said, all right, okay, well, let's have a crack at it. That makes sense. Yeah, that's right. So I said, so they showed me and I went, well, on the weekend, Mary, and I'm sort of squinting, looking at it, trying to read what it says. I'm going, Mary Pierce beat. And they said, right, okay, so the first thing you want to do is make it, it's just to help you talk, but don't look at it like you're talking. You can move your head and talk to Ernie. So we did these rehearsals and practice and all that sort of stuff. So now I'm a bit like panicking a bit, right? <laughs> After two hours, I'm getting the speed right and everything. I sat there and Ernie and Denise is there and Ernie goes, well, it's a great pleasure to welcome Shane Warner. This is 93. Great uh, to welcome Shane Warner, who's just back from the Ashes series. He's signed with Channel 9, so we'd like to announce that. And also, he's got some sport for us. Over to you, Shane. And I went, well, thanks very much, Ernie. Thanks, Denise. Uh, yes, we have got a big... And I'm just looking at it, reading this. I'm going, we've had a huge weekend in uh, sport. We've got Mary Pierce beat... Uh, he goes... Uh, uh, I said, sorry, uh, Mary Price beat... <laughs> And he goes, uh, who, who? I said, uh, Price Pierce, doesn't matter. She Mary beat. <laughs> so I, I never did it again. Right. <laughs> but that was my first sort of gig into it. And then when I was injured in 96, um, they asked me to join the commentary team. And I did, uh, I can't remember how many test matches I did that summer when I was injured. Um, but I remember sitting down, first of all, they said, you've got to look there. There's your times you're commentating. So I looked up and I had me and Tony Gregg. So I sat in the chair and no one said anything to me. So I didn't know That's it. what what was it, like. What do I do? No one told me. There was Richie Chaps, um, Richie Ian Chapel, Tony Gregg, Bill Laurie. Uh, there might have been I don't know, whoever we were playing. There was probably one of them, but they were the, really the only commentators. So I sat in the chair, and he goes, "Well, here we go. This is a huge moment. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining us, Shane Warne." <laughs> and he and away he went. And I said, "Okay." And I held, sort of held the mic up and said, oh, thanks very much, Tony. Like, I had no idea. What's next? What, what do I do now? <laughs> um, so then, you know, after we finished our sort of stint, he said, well, let me tell you, let me tell you a few little things. So he said, right, yeah, blah, blah, blah. So he sort of said, look, less is more. Um, he said, don't tell the viewers what they can see. 
Uh, he said, try and describe what's happening and then give him some options. So it was obviously exactly similar to what Kerry Packer had told me. Uh, and then over the years of doing it, I sort of just try to put my own spin on it and be myself because you can't try and be somebody else. You've got to try and be yourself. And um, I love – Bill was my favourite. I love Bill Laurie. I just think he bought something. He, he enhanced the pictures that you were watching. And as a kid growing up, I think what he also did, you'd have the volume up. Yep. Even if you're playing cricket in the backyard or you're having a swim or whatever, you'd still have the volume loud enough that you could hear it. Got him! Yes! God! And you'd run inside and, <laughs> and Bill would be like, that's it, on your bike. God, yeah. And I just, I just always remember that. Just got him! Gone! Bill going berserk. And I just remember it. Which is why it's such an, I think, important role, what what you guys do, because you're the voice of summer. We are. And it's... You too, Howie. Well, yeah, you I'm, too, I'm Howie. a very small no, voice. But we're all part of well, it. Well, I have thought that. We all that, play our part. And I grew up playing backyard cricket and listening to these guys yourself. It's ingrained in the Australian yep. psyche. So it's such an important role to so many people, isn't it? Now I see kids now yep. and they've been watching the cricket and... Yeah, it's, it's a huge role in the Australian fabric, I reckon. It is. You've got to sell the game. Yeah. You're, you're a salesman. You're a, you're a commentator. You're trying to enhance the pictures. You want people to stay on and watch, you, watch the cricket, so you have to keep it entertaining. You can't waffle. You can't talk too much. And people think it's easy talking about the cricket, but six hours of live cricket of a test match, we've been lucky this summer where it's been quite exciting, so there's been a bit to talk about. But, you know, you think back to Boxing Day 2017, it was a slow old game. We, Tasmania when you had West Indies playing we, Australia. We had this conversation. I, I think I was doing a Howie Games in America, actually. Um, and I was coming back and yep. we'd both signed with yep. Fox. Um, and you said to me, in I think in the LAX lounge, yep. you said, mate, you know, the, the Big Bash has gone really well, but it's a whole different ball yeah. game commentating test cricket. And after the first day in Adelaide, I don't yeah. know if you remember, I yeah. pulled your side and said, You're right. now I know what you mean. It's, yeah. it's a... Um, it's it's a, mentally, for yeah. a commentator, people don't they think it's easy to sit yeah. there and talk about the game, but... It's not. You've got to know when to stop talking. You've got to know when to... Really, if you've only got something to add, then talk. Otherwise, yep. don't. Let the pictures talk. And like your previous... But all, of us, sometimes, all of us have the tendency to sometimes yeah. talk too much. All of us. Yep. Richie was the ultimate one who'd, who'd never really talked too much. If anything, he was less, and he worked on the theory less is more, and everyone loved him. Do you so think it'll work now? That, I think broadcasting has evolved and changed because there was no 2020 back then and, and, and really one-day cricket was still similar to test cricket. Where 2020 is a completely different audience, it's a younger audience, and if you look at sport commentators around the world, the movement and how it's evolved is let's show more excitement, let's be more loud. Let's be, God damn, yes, that's our what a moment. So you're calling these moments because what ended up happening is they get shown on Twitter, news feeds, uh, news services all around the world because everyone's trying to have content to post out there. So those moments that captured right then and there to capture the moment of what happened are very important to have that um, that commentary. And if you get it right, it's helps the pictures. Back to cricket. Now you get my son. Oh, so I've had the pickle. Now you get the big penguin. The big penguin. So I've got pickle and big penguin. Named himself four years ago. So self, self, self uh, nicknamed. Right. Okay. No one really knows where it came from. 
Um, <coughs> we should probably leave it there about yes, the big pickle. Yes, uh, important day for him as you're about to hear, but this is his. Does question. he like the pickles in McMacca's when you uh, go there? To... She loves the pickles. Oh, sorry, the, she. Yeah, yeah, the penguin is not so happy with right, the pickles. Okay, okay. Here we go. Yes. Big Penguin here. It's my birthday today and I got a really cool bike. What was your favourite birthday present you got? And also, have you ever got a hat trick? I've never got a hat trick, but I've really wanted to. So you got the two-parter. Wow. What a question, the Big Penguin. Turned seven today. Yeah, he turned seven today. Very well, proud ha- of first himself. First of all, is um, happy birthday, Big Pickle. Uh, big big pe- Penguin. Big Penguin. <laughs> I'm just trying to... A lot of people get confused. Don't, don't worry, worry, the third one's going to be called Big Pickle. <laughs> um, There's no third. Uh, it is, it ain't mine, and that's a concern. We, come on. Um, so your favourite birthday present? My favourite birthday present, uh, Mr Big Penguin, would be... Um, I, I tell you what, a bike was one of my first, and I, and I remember seeing my father in the middle of the night. I knew my birthday was the next day. And I remember looking out the window and seeing my dad making the bike. And I remember thinking, wow, how good is that look? Um, So, yeah, that was one of my first memories. So a bike the same uh, as you, Big Penguin. And I think, yes, I have. Out of all the cricket I've played, in junior cricket, I've only ever taken one hat-trick. I've been on a hat-trick a few times, but I've only ever taken... One hat trick, and that was Boxing Day 94 against England. I knocked over Freitas. Phil DeFreitas, LB. Oh, Oh, and hit the pad. Yes, he's got him. That's out. LBW. That hit the pad, and that is the end of DeFreitas. Darren Goff caught behind. Great catch from Ian Healy. Oh, and that's out. Caught behind. And then the third one, Devin Malcolm, came out looking like Robocop. He had that much padding on. I'm thinking, what the hell's he got all this padding on for? It was David Boone's birthday, the keg on legs. And I thought, what am I going to bowl? I ended up bowling like a top-spinning leg spinner because I thought he's just going to go forward and block it. So if I can get one to bounce and turn, he'll either nick it, hopefully bat pad it, uh, or miss it and just get bowled. So I said, all right, that's it. Took a breath. Here we go. Fleming took the last one. Merv used before him. Came in, bowled it. He pushed forward, hit the glove, went to his left. And David Boone, the keg on legs, was flying through the air, took it just off the ground in his right hand and threw the ball up in the air, put his hands up in the air. <laughs> and um, oh, it was just awesome. And you talk about the commentary about Richie, about the Mike Gouting ball. Tony Gregg? Tony Gregg on the hat-trick ball. Yes, he's got him! He's got it! Trick to Shane Ward, and he goes berserk. That was that's awesome. Yes! Pictures, if we ever get the pictures one day, or if you're ever searching on Google or YouTube, whatever, slow it down or pause it just as he gloves it to David Boone because Mark Wall is at Silly Mid Off. 
And Mark War goes around to say, well done to me. And I'm straight to David Boone, so he has to do this U-turn. He's sort of <laughs> high-fiving no one and coming back. It, it's very, very funny. Well, we actually should try and get it up over Boxing Day. We'll try and get we'll it up get it through up. the test we, matches, yeah. We will definitely it was funny. get it up. You've had some amazing moments at the MCG, um, and it seems a shame in a way to skip through your career. But I think as someone that was there... Um, your 700th test wicket. Mm-hmm. Before we talk about that, the kid that got smacked around by Ravi Shastri mm-hmm. to becoming the best of his craft of all time, let's be, mm-hmm. let's be honest about it, mm-hmm. what did that mean to you to come from such humble beginnings to be the greatest? And what does it um, mean to you now, Shane? Well, I think when I first started, all you want to do when you get picked is not embarrass yourself. <laughs> you know, you just want to be try and do okay as you sort of get over that and you start to think you do a few things that you think yeah you know what i might be good enough for this level so when i play uh the west indies the great western inside then in 92 at boxing i took seven for 50 on the last day and helped win a test match for australia the west indies are on the ropes Could be the end of the test match. Seven wickets for Shane Warne. Big Merv's got great hands. He won't miss it. And there it is. A great victory for Australia and a tremendous day's work for Shane Warne. His best bowling ever in first-class cricket. And what a time to do it. And what a place to do it in front of his own crowd here at the MCG. Richie Richardson with a great flipper. Yeah. When I did that, I started to realise that, yes, I am good enough for this level. So once you realise you're good enough... It's about then saying, well, how good can I be? And the other thing about that is there's nothing like knowing you're playing the next game in any sport. When you, know, when you don't know and you're playing for your spot, you don't play the same as when you know you're playing the next game. When you know you're playing the next game in AFL or in cricket or whatever, you take a few more risks. When you're not sure, you're cautious and you don't want to make a mistake. So you don't play with that freedom. So I suddenly then was prepared to go around the wicket and try silly things or I tried wrongins and flippers and also I was prepared to gamble. If I bowled a few bad balls, I, it's okay because I know I'm going to play the next game. And I wouldn't have tried them in my early days in the first few games because I didn't want it in case I stuffed it up. Um, so over that time, I started to think, you know, once I played the West Indies, then we played England and then South Africa, then India, then Pakistan. And I started to play all the different countries and have success against all of them. I started to think, well, okay, how good, let's, let's, come on. And, you know, you don't play for records, but suddenly, you know, the fastest is 300, the fastest of 400 now, he's the first person ever to take five, he's broken the world record, and it's like, that doesn't drive you, you just, you're just playing to win. And if you play for long enough, all those things happen if you do, do well enough. So I've always told young sportsmen, not just cricketers, I've spoken to a lot of sportsmen, and I've always said to them, look, if you look after on the field mm-hmm. and do it well, everything else will look after itself off the field. Don't worry about records, sponsorships, anything like that. It'll naturally look after itself if, if you just do well on the field. So, you know, in the end, it was like, you know, the, I mean, my script writer through my whole life was pretty amazing. To, to think I played 145 test matches, but with, when I retired... Uh, in 2006 and at the MCG, about to play my last ever game at the MCG, I'm on 699 wickets. Now, one extra wicket in those other 140-odd test matches, it's like... Yeah, it's crazy. Oh, like, how does that happen? You know, we're bowling in Perth to try and win the test match and win the Ashes, and I take the last couple of weeks and we knock them over. Now, 
If I'd have got one more there, I would have got 700 in Perth. And it would have, but it's just the way it all panned out. It's like who, like, so I was very, very lucky with that. But even more importantly, the era that I played in Australian cricket, I think, stands up against any team uh, at any stage of the world. And you think of the uh, the 80s with the Windies. I think that the West Indies of the 80s and our best team that we had in that period that I, I think would give them a run for their money. Now, yes, we didn't have a Viv Richards, Bill. Yes, we didn't have, you know, the Ambrose, Walsh, all those guys at their peak and stuff. But, geez, we had a good side. Oh, and it would have been a great match. To, and I mean, Viv Richards is the only player, besides Bradman, uh, Viv Richards is the only player I would have loved to have bowled to that I sometimes. Th- think, geez, I would have loved to bowl to him. I mean, we all have tested ourselves against Bradman. Yeah, he would have smashed us all over the park, but <laughs> probably the same with Viv. But you would have liked to, I would have loved to have tested myself against the best. And that to me, Viv Richards was the best batsman outside. I mean, every argument you talk about, you can't talk about Bradman because he was the best and there's no debate about that. But everyone else you can debate about. Uh, to me, Viv was the best and I don't think anyone comes near him. I mean, in my, in my era, Tendulkar and Lara were the best two. I mean, they were they were easily the best. The next best after that, you can, you know, the the Kevin Petersons, the Graham Gooches, the Ricky Pontings, the Jacques Callis, Sankakara. You can keep going. They were all terrific, greats yep. and wonderful players. But the two standouts of our era were Lara and Tendulkar. They were special. They were unbelievable at what they could do to any attack in any condition. So, and I think Viv was. That. I mean, he got voted. I think. One of the five, he was one of the five creators as well of the century. So you're the only one that wasn't a sir. There's Bradman. Yes, well, it's a long way to Australia for the sir. Hobbs, Viv, Sir Garfield. Uh, you talked about the script writer, mate. What happens in a couple of instances where the script doesn't go your way? Mm-hmm. Um, reading in your book, I was really interested to read about because now when you hear. Uh, match fixing. Yep. We know match fixing as it is today. Mm-hmm. Where we all know about it, we get a briefing before the summer mm-hmm. to be told to watch out for approaches. You and Mark War got in a difficult situation, but in a very, very different time. A very different yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, you've got to remember back, oh, was it 92 or 93? Sounds or about 90, right. 4. Those early 90s, it was one of those things, there was never any talk about match fixing or anything like that and you know I was a little bit different to Junior uh, where he had a business deal and I met this guy as a friend of Mark's um, and you know any friend of Mark's was a friend of mine and I mean the story's all in my books I'm not going to go into all the details about all of that stuff but you know I've never ever done anything wrong on a cricket field as in a way of trying to throw a game or bowl a bad ball on purpose that's just not me and I think people watching me play the game would would see the way how much I cared about how passionate I was about it and never did that but to be even talked about that I possibly could have I mean that hurt Um, and that was disappointing that you know I was naive to think that you know some guy gave me five grand a casino that's what I lost five grand rings me a couple of times just wish me Merry Christmas and stuff and suddenly I found out later he was a bookmaker I went holy shit he's a bookmaker um Okay, well, so I copped the fine. So, yeah, I, I did the wrong thing, but I didn't do the wrong thing knowingly. You know, I was a bit naive to it and should have probably just not take the five grand off someone. Um, but, I, I mean, there's a lot more to just taking the five grand, and I'm not going to go into 20 minutes, half an no. hour about how it was, but it was one of these things where the guy had no, he said, no strings attached, I saw you lose that, here's five grand, um, you know, I'm a wealthy man. I said, I don't need your money, and I, I turn it down, turn it down, turn it down. He said, look, there's a five grand chip. I'll put it on the table, lost it at the casino again. So uh, it was nothing 
there wasn't anything sinister. It's a bit like the diet diuretic that my mum gave me. I never ever blame my mum for that. And it's disappointing when people say I did. All I did was say I got a, diet, a fat pill off my mum because I didn't want them to think that I'd subscribed to it online from some country that you're not allowed to or it was from a black market or anything like that. Which, so it cost you a World Cup? Cost you... Cost me with 2003 a year World Cup, a year out of the game. But in a way that sort of helped me because, you know, I'd been playing the best part of uh, 1990 to nearly 15 years um, of first-class cricket. My body, I'd been through four shoulder operations. I'd had knee ops. I'd been through a lot. So it gave me a year just to do some things I wanted to do, and that was I wanted to get my golf handicap down. I got down to 6.4. I wanted to learn how to drive properly, so I was going to get my CAMS licence. I, uh, I did all the advanced driving courses and learned how to do all that properly. Um, I spent a lot of time with my family. We went away on some holidays, and and so and I let my body refresh. Um, so, yeah, those sort of things, they hurt looking back for them, but I know myself that I didn't do... You know, I didn't do the wrong thing on purpose. Um, yes, I'm naive. Yes, with the, the, the diuretic, I should have read a book. I should have asked someone. But I didn't think my mum was going to give me some stuff that was on the ban list. And here it is, Howie. A couple of years after that, it got taken off because it was proven to not ban- uh, mask anything. Right. So and that's what we said. I've had 13 tests and they're all the same. So it hasn't masked anything. How can you rub him out when it hasn't masked anything? And then a few years later, it was taken off the list because it was proven not to mask anything. So, so, ha- so just ha- take that with it. You know, it's just one of those things. And um, we'll get to how you deal with success and how you become successful. But mm-hmm. how have you dealt with the difficult times in your life? Uh, I'm not talk specifics, but in yeah, general, when I things, when things gone don't your way. go the way you want them to, or when things happen that are bad, um, and it affects other people, and it's your fault. Um, and you, like, in the end of the day, I feel I let down my family, friends and my children. Uh, that's hurtful. Um, how do you handle it? You sort of just sit in the house and sulk um, for a while. And then once you get there, you go, come on, you, get out, lift yourself up and stop being a bloody idiot. Come on. Um, so I always, it's disappointing when those things happen and you let down people, but... At the end of the day, you, you, you can't change it. It's happened. So it's how you deal with things rather than um, constantly think of what actually happened. It, it's like, move on. You know, move on. And in this country, I think there's too many things that we harp on. Like we're still talking about sandpaper gate. And so, like, it's nearly 12 months ago. Get over it. It's a negative world in which we live these days, though. It is. And everyone likes to harp on that. All the good stuff very rarely gets done, and there's plenty of good stuff. Now, out of all the things, the most hurtful thing that's happened to me out of everything probably was the foundation. I, I went on a trip of a lifetime in 2003 when I was out for a year, and I went with Dave Rogers, Challenge Kids with Cancer. We took 10 kids on a trip of a lifetime to America, and I went all around America with these 10 kids, um, showing them America. And I thought, look, I'd been going to hospitals, I'd visited families, I'd helped out, I'd donated money and all those things over my you know, 15 years or whatever up until that point. And I thought, there's something more I can do. There's got to be something more. So I said, you know what, I'm going to start up my own foundation for all the children that fall through the cracks because a few friends of mine, one, I won't say his name, but his son has got autism. Now, what I didn't realise 20 years ago, there was different levels of autism. I thought if you had autism, you had autism. Mm -hmm. But there are different levels of autism. 
And his son didn't meet the criteria to have funding for autism because he didn't have it... Um, a certain level. A certain level, right? Yep. So I was like, well, hang on, what happens to... How does he get help? So that was sort of like, okay, all those things in the mix. I've got my children there and they were healthy and I was so happy about that and visiting all those children that weren't as lucky as mine. I thought there's more I can do. So I set up my foundation, put a board together, um, put in my own money. I put in $50,000 of my own money to start it. Uh, I got a few friends to put in $50,000 as well and they helped me. So I had $250,000 to start. I hired one person to help me. Uh, we rented an office and we started putting on events and whatever money we raised, we gave away. Um, obviously, you have to hold back running costs, which were, you know, I, I, we paid 70 grand or 50 grand back then, I think, when we started. And the maximum we ever paid anyone was 75. Um, then when the global financial crisis hit, we had a couple of really bad years. Like, it's not just washed its face. We made a bit more than that. But it was difficult. Not many people were buying signed cricket bats or signed photos. They wanted to start, everyone started to want these experiences that money can't buy. So we had to sort of change the dynamics in the charity world. We had to change how you did your functions because people, as I said, weren't buying a bat or, or, or that. So we started offering like 10 people come and have a net with me. Um, play poker with myself and Joe Hashem. We'll come to your house with 10 of your mates. Experiences. Experiences, right? So that started, then we got back on track and we started to do really well because we had to come up with other things. But then to be accused that we were throwing parties like a, charity poker event was throwing parties for my friends to accuse guys like eddie mcguire annie peacock glenn robbins david evans andrew bassett and myself that were on the board that we were doing this for our friends that we were 16 cents in the dollar which was factually incorrect um it just wasn't right and i and i and i to try and just get there and try and defend ourselves about what we were doing changing children's lives and families and making a difference. I mean, we gave over four, nearly four and a half million dollars we gave away in that time. There was a company called Lifelight. We saved 53 children's lives by helping this company, Lifelight. And I mean, I could go on and on and on about that. But to be accused of doing the wrong thing, to be um, accused of, of things that just weren't true and factually incorrect was so hurtful because... What do you put on time? What price do you put on time? Eddie Maguire, Ed, would you mind coming to the Monash Hospital and help us sing to kids and help visit? You know, Michael Clark, Brennan Goddard, Nick Rewalt, um, Andy Lee, all these ambassadors that were helping us do things and the board that would do these things and put, buy their own tickets, buy their tables and, and things like that. It was just so disappointing to be accused of that. Um, Campbell Brown went to swim the English Channel for us and we were raffling off a car for it. And we sell tickets to our friends, right? Come on, Howie, buy a ticket. Um, you know, so dad, mum, brother, mates. So Mick Malloy draws the, draws the raffle out of the winning car. It went to my old PA, Helen Nolan, who hadn't worked for me for a couple of years, but suddenly everyone goes, oh, it's rigged. It's got... I mean, it was probably the worst case scenario that happened, but it was... It, we're not gonna we're not gonna fudge a raffle to give to my PA who didn't work for me anymore. So there were all those things that happened. My brother was working for me. Yes, he was, and uh, he worked for me for three years, and he did a terrific job, and we raised a lot of money. Um, but I wasn't looking after my brother to pay him. He was running my foundation, and he, I trust him. You know, people you trust in those 
things. He was doing a good job. He had experience in that field. So all those things to be accused of, that, that over everything, that hurt the most. We need to go and do a game of cricket soon. Yes. So what I'm going to do is, with no planning, mm-hmm. just ask you some questions and you just give me the first thing that comes in your right. head. Sure. Favourite car you've ever had? Lamborghini Superleggero. That was the best car I ever had. But my favourite... Most blokes say Holden. No, no. That was an unbelievable car. My first car was a TC Cortina, which was awesome, but the Lamborghini Superleggero was (laughs) something black. It was... I'd never driven something like... It was unbelievable. I mean, I only had it for a short time, but it was an unbelievable car. Nought to 100 in... Oh, it would have been a few seconds, three seconds, probably three and a bit. You're sitting down for your favourite meal. Because yes. there's so much discussed about what you eat. Mm-hmm. What is your number one meal you could have? Ham and pineapple pizza. Ham <laughs> pineapple pizza. Bad or lasagna. People don't. I like lasagna better than Garfield, the cat. <laughs> I could eat more lasagna than Garfield, the cat. So we went to a restaurant at Crown before the first test match, and yes. you're like, no, no, I'm fine. This, yeah. this is not for me. Yeah, but no. that's not show for you. You're just a man that likes simple food. Yeah. I mean, I'll have a steak and chips, I'll have a chicken and chips, I'll have a. Bit of chook by itself, or I'll have lasagna with a bit of garlic bread. Uh, uh, fancy restaurants to me are right up there in the overrated category. Yeah. They're up there with holding hands, dancing <laughs> while sober, <laughs> queuing, third you ball. I mean, I, I could keep going and going. Third you ball. I could keep going and going and going. Queuing is another big one. Uh, two buttons on a shirt, uh, champagne. Uh, I, drivers that think being in the right lane is okay. The right lane is not the fast lane, it's the overtaking lane. Men with umbrellas, that's one for me. But Men for umbrellas, yes. You. I mean, we could keep going, <laughs> but at least should start a big list. Your favourite moment in cricket? Walking out onto the Sydney Cricket Ground uh, in my first test match and looking up on the scoreboard and saying, congratulations, Shane Warne, you're the 350th test cricketer to play for Australia. And that made me realise after all that history, there's only been 350 people that have had that opportunity to play for Australia. And I thought, wow. I, I did think after it, it was my last one, but <laughs> it was, uh, I, I felt pretty proud then. Your hardest moment in cricket, on field? Hardest moment in cricket, on field? The... Uh, oh, Toss-up between Edge Baston 2005 when uh, accepting that we lost by three runs. That's probably in the semi-final. Grand final when we lost to the West Indies by one run in Adelaide. Um, that was probably the top hardest one to accept. And losing, actually, and losing the 96 World Cup final of being unprepared to Sri Lanka. Yeah. Wasn't there dew or something? Yeah, we, we batted first and there was dew on the ground and we couldn't grip the ball and we didn't realise that if we had a, when we won the toss, we would have bowled first. So not being prepared for something as big as that was pretty ordinary. Where do your wonderful manners come from? My mum and dad. Uh, my children are the same. Um, they said manners are free. They taught us all our life. Always say please, thank you, excuse, like just. And I think the other thing with it, with manners, with my children, was they've seen people come up and ask for autographs, and they've seen how I respond to people that say, "Excuse me, I know you're with your family. I'm sorry, but would you mind signing this autograph for my boy or girl?" And I'd say, "No problem." Hey, Warney, sign that, mate. When I'm with my kids, and they've seen my reaction to that, so they they realise that. Being polite costs nothing, and it's so much more endearing to people if you got if you're well mannered. Your kids would say about you, Dad is. 
Dad is strict. Dad is fun, and we love him. That's all that anyone can ask, isn't That's it? That's it. At this stage in your life, you can do a podcast with anyone. It's been a great yep. thrill for me. You can choose anyone on the planet. Warning games. Yep. Who would it be? Uh, it'd have to be Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> I'd, ha- I'd have to try and claw back some, even though he has no idea who I am, but or remember the moment. Or he might remember the moment when some idiot asked him, well, would you mind smiling at the photo? I'm sure that hasn't happened. I'm doing too many times, but... I'd like to interview Bruce Springsteen and, yeah, I'd be Bruce Springsteen. And, and Chris Martin, one of my best friends, he, he's such a talented, interesting, switched-on, smart guy. He's – I wish people could listen to the conversations that him and I have about life, about his, his work, my – they're fascinating listening to him talk. He has got it. He knows – he's so clever and so bright and so switched-on and I'm very thankful to have him as one of my best mates. I'll have to get him on the show. Yep. Your perfect day now is? Oh, my perfect day is any days that I have with the kids chilling. You know, whether we go to a movie, whether we go to the beach, whether we sit by the pool all day and listen to some music and dance silly and throw each other in the pool and Jackson and I might wrestle or the girls will dance and put the music on and say, listen to this song, Dad. And I go, my goodness, what is that? Is that not music? You know, I'm making your mother's cousin. And I go, what the hell? Where, where's, you know, Fleetwood Mac? Or something, you know? like, um, but any day spent with the kids and watching them smile and be happy uh, makes me feel good. Playing poker, you are? Uh, playing poker, I am... Dangerous, but I would like to be better and have more patience. If you could choose one cricketer to watch, one cricketer to watch right now, uh, Virat Kohli. I think he's great for the game. Australia will be the number one test team in. I think it'll be a while till Australia back to being number one. I hope I'm wrong, um, but at the moment we. Our batting just lacks a little bit of class. And I think once Warner and Smith come back in, we're on the road to uh, getting back to being number one. St Kilda will win the Premiership. Hopefully in my lifetime. (laughs) Mate, again, the book is called No Spin, Shane Warne. You heard Shane for the last hour and a bit. The book is even better than this conversation. Congratulations on the book. Thanks very much for having Um, me, Harry. I appreciate it. One of those great days, the ovation I got when I walked out onto the ground, um, the delay of the 700th wicket of it not quite happening and then suddenly it happened. Ah! Got him! There it is! Wicket number 700! And they can't catch him! Rest in peace, Warney, from Triple M.